This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago during the days of the war, with the occasional more recent radio program about the war. Today we have the January 16th, 1944 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Algiers, Pearl Harbor, London, Moscow, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Stay tuned for the news. World News Today. Brought to you by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. Leading the news today is the announcement that General Eisenhower has arrived in Britain to take over command of all forces for the invasion. And in French Morocco, Prime Minister Churchill, completely recovered, has conferred with French General de Gaulle. On the war fronts, American troops in Italy have captured Mount Trocchio, the main barrier blocking their way to the fortress of Casino. The Germans report a break in their lines by the new Russian offensive in the Leningrad area. And in the Pacific... The Allied ground push against the Japanese on New Britain and on New Guinea continues at a slow pace. And now for the news of the fighting in Italy, Admiral Radio takes you overseas to Algiers, Winston Burdett reporting. The Americans in Italy have captured the last hill barrier between them and the Rapido River. Montrocchio, 1,500 feet high, two miles this side of Casino, fell to our troops at nightfall yesterday after a rough 12-hour fight. Here in Algiers, it was announced today that General de Gaulle met Winston Churchill last Wednesday at Marrakesh in Morocco, where the Prime Minister is now almost wholly recovered from his recent illness. The meeting of the two leaders was their first since last June. From all accounts, it was one of their most cordial. After lunch, they sat for two hours by the swimming pool in Mr. Churchill's garden, chatted, smoked the Prime Minister's cigars, Reminisced related incidents from the dramatic days of June 1940. Churchill related how he had pointed out the goal to Lord Halifax and said, there is France's man of destiny. Conversation at Marrakesh was often personal, sometimes sentimental. The two statesmen also discussed difficult, unsentimental subjects. On the key issues involving France today, their meeting produced no definite agreements, no final understanding. It did produce, according to the French here, fairly good assurances by the Prime Minister regarding shipment of arms to French guerrilla fighters. Not quite so firm assurances 
regarding the possibility of some form of Allied military administration in France during the Allied invasion, a possibility which alarms and dismays Frenchmen here. It's understood that on all subjects, the Prime Minister spoke in a friendly way and said something should be done without definitely committing himself. Mixed with their disappointment that nothing positive was decided, Frenchmen here show satisfaction that Mr. Churchill so obviously feels the necessity of reaching a sounder, closer understanding with the French and the French Liberation Committee. That is the chief impression left here by the Marrakesh meeting. It is encouraging to Frenchmen, even though they realistically point out that in all matters affecting France's future, the final decision rests at least as much with Washington as it does with London. I return you now to New York. More news in just a moment, but first here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Radio sending sets, perhaps Admiral built, have been parachuted by Allied planes to Europe's underground. Luigi, the Italian farmer, is a member of that underground, and one day, not long ago, this is what happened. Luigi stopped toiling in his vineyard and stood motionless to watch a formation of Nazi bombers overhead. He counted them and carefully noted the type of each plane. He wasted no time cursing this enemy who had confiscated his crops, but hurried to the shed where he kept his wine barrels. There, from a barrel with a false bottom, he took a small, compact radio sending set. In code, he reported to the Allies through radio, underground, the time, direction, and number of planes in the formation. Then he relaxed, secure in the knowledge that these hated Nazi planes would never reach their objective. Through radio, underground, Allied interceptors took to the air in time to inflict another defeat upon the enemy. Radio, indispensable to victory, continues to do its important job. Not only in the air, on land, on and under the seven seas, but underground. In pre-war days, Admiral Corporation was the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. The Admiral's skill and Admiral precision engineering that made this possible have been dedicated to the production so necessary for final victory. Admiral equipment is fighting on every front, war-proved, battle-tested. The many advancements brought by war will be found in your new peacetime admiral, America's smart set. Now, here once again is Doug Edwards. Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington. Don Pryor reporting. It has been known here for several days that General Eisenhower was in Washington and that he conferred with a high command in President Roosevelt before leaving for London to take up his new job as Allied invasion commander. But his presence here had been kept secret pending his safe arrival in Britain. Other important conferences have been underway here too. Lieutenant General George C. Kenney, General MacArthur's air commander, arrived unannounced and has been in conference with Admiral Halsey, South Pacific commander, and with top military and naval officials, and also President Roosevelt. The President and Secretary Hull are considering the Polish government's request for British and American diplomatic intervention in the Polish-Russian border dispute. Under Secretary of State Stettinius said last night in a radio broadcast that this country has everything to gain and nothing to lose from the closest cooperation with the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, the aroma of politics is becoming stronger here every day. The Democratic National Committee will meet here Saturday to pick a time and place for the party's presidential convention, which probably will be in Chicago in July. On Capitol Hill, the House will take up the mustering out pay bill tomorrow. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. 
This week, our Army bombers continue to soften up Jap bases in the Central Pacific for a first-hand account from the commander of our 7th Air Force, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Pearl Harbor, Webley Edwards reporting. In all the world, there's no campaign quite like the present operations of the 7th Army Air Force in the Central Pacific, ceaselessly pounding vital Jap island bases. I'd like to introduce the commanding general of the 7th AAF, Major General Willis H. Hale, just returned to Hickam Field from the bombing front. General, we're most interested in learning of the men who make these tremendous flights. These men are flying trackless ocean wastes with no landmarks to guide them, navigating to tiny pinpoint targets, bombing their objectives, and returning to their own pinpoint bases. On 50 missions from November 12th through January 7th, they averaged more than 2,400 miles per mission in their pre-invasion bombing of the Gilberts and their present strikes against the Marshals. We are engaging in continuous operations, and we have many objectives. To reach and destroy them, we must span great distances, often encountering bad weather fronts through tricky cloud formations before we ever get to the Japanese interceptor fighters or any aircraft. Because of the exceptionally long flights our bombers must make to reach their objectives, the strain, both mental and physical, is very great. How heavy have losses been, General Hale? Our losses, while grievous, have been very light indeed. Nevertheless, we are determined to inflict as great damage as possible on the enemy with the smallest possible loss to our own men. We believe we can do this. With the kind of continuous operations you've outlined, General, is there a limit to a flyer's efficiency? These men would go on flying until dead if we asked it of them. But we believe that if we can give the men assurance of a chance to live before the percentage catches up with them, we will have better flyers and accomplish greater results. To this end, we have established a goal of 30 missions per man. We have figured that in 30 missions, the men have better than a 50-50 chance of coming out alive. When a man has completed 30 missions, we send him back as an instructor in the nation's training schools where his experience is extremely valuable. We've also developed a plan where, after finishing about half of his 30 missions, some 12% of the flyers in rotation come back to Hawaii for a short recuperation period. They return much refreshed and ready for more action. A total of 30 missions is a lot of action, General. Yes, it is. In 30 missions against purely military objectives, a man gets as much action as some ground troops might get only in years of intermittent warfare. We may even lower the quota of missions later as we have more time to observe results. Have you a word from the men of the 7th AAF to the people back home, General? These men are a long way from home, flying extremely hazardous missions against a very determined enemy. They are doing a great job in the face of great personal danger and discomfort. They are pioneering a strange new kind of air warfare in a strange new part of the world, and they are doing it well. You may well be proud of them. I am. Thank you, General Hale. This has been an interview with Major General Willis H. Hale, commanding the 7th AAF in the Central Pacific. This is Webley Edwards, returning you to Admiral Radio in New York. In London, at Columbia's microphone, is Colonel Ovita Culp Hobby of the Wax. For an interview with her, Admiral Radio takes you now to London. Larry LeSueur reporting. General Ike Eisenhower, Commander-in-Chief of the Invasion Forces, is here in England. Shortly before arriving here, General Eisenhower had talks with President Roosevelt and also with Prime Minister Churchill, who has now fully recovered his health in Marrakesh, Morocco. One of the sights of London these days is the groups of American girl soldiers, our wax, sightseeing in Piccadilly, looking at the bombed houses of Parliament, 
and inspecting the landmarks of old England. In fact, almost everywhere you look, you see their snappy uniforms. Although there's only more than a little thousand about wax over here, but they do get around. Colonel Ovita Kolpabi of Houston, Texas, director of the WAC and highest ranking woman officer in the U.S. Army, has just paid her women a flying visit. In one week, Colonel Hobby has managed to inspect every WAC in Britain, and she's very pleased with what she saw. Colonel Hobby, you visited every one of the bases in England where American WACs are stationed, and I imagine you haven't seen any of these women for many months since they left American shores. What has impressed you most about our WACs over here? Well, physically, our women are very fit. They look as trim under war conditions as they did when they were in training. The thing that impressed me most was what you might call their spirited adaptation to war. Their efforts to adapt themselves to new conditions are very successful. I think the reason is because they know how much they are needed. That's especially important to a woman. Every commanding officer at the stations in which they are serving has expressed his gratitude to them for their help. I knew our women would serve well here. But now that they've found that their services are so gratefully received, it's given them an added incentive. Well, Colonel Harvey, did you find any homesickness among our women? Surprisingly little. That's good. Of course, they're very eager to get any bit of news they can from home. But I must say that very few of them want to go home right away. In fact, we are finding great difficulty in securing enough officer candidates for the ETO quota. They don't seem to be interested. They say we are doing the job we volunteered for over here. We don't see much point in being sent home to be trained as officers. Same thing was true among the women in Africa. They are near the war, and they want to remain near it. Well, maybe they're like all women. They're afraid they'll miss something if they go home. Colonel Harvey, do you think our wax will accompany the army into Europe? Well, of course, all of our wax must be looking forward to going to the continent. But we can't make any promises. That's up to General Eisenhower. Our lines would have to be very secure before wax were allowed to go over. And of course, they'd never be very near the front. Well, I guess all our wax must be eager to see Europe anyway. Colonel Harvey, have the wax over here found time for romance? Well, I suppose they must have. I've heard of a half dozen marriages over here myself. Some to Britishers and some to Americans. That's so. Well, Colonel Harvey, do you think our women will want to stay in the army after the war? I don't think they're thinking very much about what they're going to do after the war. They're working hard getting the war over. I do think our wives look forward to home life. They'll have a keener appreciation of it because their life is so different now. They fix up their bags, built in little cupboards, painted the blinds, and I've never seen so many flowers in an army building before. Oh. Of course, our women will never lose touch with home. I remember going into a whack kitchen and asking the cooks if they had all the equipment they needed. They told me they had plenty of equipment, but they were a little short of egg beaters, so they'd written their mothers to send them some. Well, that's certainly unusual for the army. But, Colonel Harvey, what is the main thought you'll take back home to America after your review of our women over here? My reassurance that our works are so well taken care of over here and how proud our American men are to have American women working alongside with them. It pleases me very much to see American women over here sharing the war responsibility with American men. Well, thank you very much, Colonel Harvey. We return you now to CBS New York.
Late dispatches from Argentina received in Chile say 5,000 persons are either dead or injured as the result of an earthquake yesterday in the Argentine city of San Juan. Previous official estimates placed the dead at 200. The German high command has admitted today that Soviet forces have punched a hole in the Nazi defenses in the Leningrad sector. For the second successive day, while the Russians make no mention of fighting in that area, Berlin reports bitter battles. At last report from Moscow, Russian troops for the fourth successive day had thrown back German attacks east of Vinitsa in the southwestern Ukraine. Now, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Madrid, Glenn Stadler reporting. Adolf Hitler's constant use of William Shakespeare's words, to be or not to be, are more significant than ever today. Although Berlin claims that the Russian offensive doesn't inspire serious fears to the high command, a local military commentator warns that the Wehrmacht has absolutely no other choice than to attack or retreat. The third possibility of standing still is out of the question because of Soviet power. The Germans, he says, cannot hold the present long zigzag line. The Germans say, quote, that their retreat is due to the shortening of the front, so it can be, de be defended with less men. That intention seems logical, he agrees, but at the moment the front is growing longer. Berlin reports also contend that the new Russian offensive toward Estonia has not been a surprise, and that the capture of Sarny has no military importance. All the Soviet gains are merely advances of exploration, they argue. Thus, there shouldn't be so much political fuss about Poland because that country still is firmly in German hands. Sarny, of course, is 40 miles inside the 1939 border. Nazi apologists also continue to claim that the 900-mile Red Army advance in the past year has failed to force the Wehrmacht into a battle of annihilation. That contention is granted even by Allied military observers. They admit that the Nazi general staff has done a good job of retreating since Stalingrad. Despite heavy losses in killed and wounded, the German forces have been kept fairly well intact, conserving their still great strength for the final all-out defense of the Reich itself against attacks from all directions. Here in Madrid, the Falanchi Minister of Labor, Giron, announced in the speech that state socialized medicine, financed jointly by the government, industry, and the workers, would be put into effect immediately. The program would ensure medical treatment for every employed person, from shoeshine boys to lawyers. This is Ben Sandler in Madrid, returning you to Admiral Radio in New York. The Navy is anxiously waiting for more and more ships to pour from our production lines. For an interview with the chief of the Navy's Bureau of Ships, Admiral Radio takes you back to Washington. Don Pryor reporting. The war is moving fast. Further invasions are coming soon. And right now, the number one priority is no longer airplanes. It's the Navy's vast fleet of landing craft, which will storm the beaches of Hitler's fortress Europe and Hirohito's empire in the, in the Pacific. More than 20,000 of them already built and 45,000 more on the way. Here's the man in charge of this unbelievably complex program. He is Rear Admiral E.L. Cochran, USN, Chief of the Navy's Bureau of Ships. And here's America, Admiral Cochran. Tell us about the job you're doing and why every American is involved in it. I'm glad you put it that way, because that's just the point I want to make. As you say, right now, this is the most urgent program of the whole war effort. And it's not a one-man job by any means. It isn't even just a Navy job. It's an American job in every sense. Well, could you give us some of the background, Admiral Cochran, to make it clear just why landing craft right now are so terribly urgent? That's just because it's so new, I suppose. It's because with the fall of France, there wasn't a single bridge beachhead left in Europe. 
At that time, we had practically no landing craft or landing ships. Now, every operation we undertake will depend on landing craft. Well, but that was clear at the beginning of the war, wasn't it? I should think that this construction program would have been spread out over the last two years, more or less. That's a good point. The answer is that we've had to take first things first. Our emphasis on the landing craft has necessarily fluctuated with the ebb and flow of the war. In the spring of 42, landing craft were given major emphasis. But in the fall of 42, and in the spring of 43, we had to shift our attention to the anti-submarine campaign. The subs have been brought under control by the destroyers, the destroyer escorts, and the baby flat tops added to our regular force through an emergency construction program. Incidentally, Admiral Cochrane was in charge of the design and construction of those ships, too, the ships that are winning the Battle of the Atlantic. But meanwhile, we reaped the benefit of our earlier landing craft program in the North African and Mediterranean campaigns. Now, with our ascendancy over the submarines, we are able to shift our emphasis again to reallocate many of our shipyards and factories from the building of anti-submarine vessels to landing craft. And now we are moving at full speed to keep on top of the timetable. We are doing it too, but there must be no failures anywhere. The whole schedule of the war depends on it, and that means that thousands of lives depend on it, because they need these ships at the right time, at the right place, and in the right numbers when the time comes for invasion. That was Rear Admiral E.L. Cochran, Chief of the Bureau of Ships. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. And here in our New York studio today is CBS correspondent Paul Manning, just returned to this country after four years in Britain. While there, he was assigned to the American 8th Air Force and went on four bombing missions over the German-held continent. Here he is now to tell us something about Allied air operations against the enemy. In the past seven days, I've been asked a lot of questions about the bombing of Germany. When we lost 60 bombers and 600 men Tuesday afternoon, people here suddenly realized that the German Air Force was still strong. People have said to me, if the bombing is so good and if we shoot down so many German fighters, how can the Germans keep it up? Well, I certainly don't know all the answers. But here's a few observations I've made after watching this business of bombing Germany. When American and British bombers go for a target in Germany, sometimes they hit it and sometimes they don't. It usually depends on weather. I've known the RAF to try for Hanover and then miss by 20 miles. And when American planes headed for Stuttgart last September 6, they failed to even find the city. Heavy clouds covered the whole target. We lost 45 bombers, that's 924 men, on that day in running battles which accounted for 84 German fighters. Yet some 80% of those German pilots were able to bail out and return to battle the following day. There are times when visibility is so good our bombers can't miss. The docks at Gdynia, the German fighter plane factory at Mariansburg, the U-boat sheds at Vegasack, they were all smashed on such days. Well, what about night bombing, Paul? Do they still need a bomber's moon to do maximum damage to Berlin? It certainly helps. That new technique of bombing through clouds, either by day or night, is still not perfect. The most destructive raids on the German capital have been on nights when airmen could easily see the ground from 20,000 feet. Well, how much more do you think Berlin can take before it cracks? No one can say. So far, the German capital has had over 15,000 tons, and she's still holding up. But Air Chief Marshal Harris states that his attacks will continue until Berlin has been saturated with 70,000 tons. This tonnage won't come all at once. German cities, like Brunswick, and the French coast opposite Dover, 
where rocket guns are said to be installed, now have equal priority with Berlin. Well, what's your opinion of these rocket guns, Paul? Do you think London is going to be smashed by rocket bombs? Well, Doug, frankly, I don't know. The experts in London are divided. Even the war cabinet isn't certain. I do know that the rockets which the Germans are now using against American bombers are terrible instruments of destruction. Today, the German Air Force is fighting with bitterness and great skill. They know it's the Luftwaffe who keep defeat from the German home front. Thank you, Paul Manning. And now, once again, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. No doubt many of you find that your radio doesn't always work properly. And you've said, after the war, I'm going to get this set completely overhauled. That's a commendable thought on your part, for many Admiral dealers are fully occupied making essential repairs. But it's possible that your trouble may be of a minor nature, something that, with the aid of Admiral's Home Checkup Chart, you can remedy yourself. Admiral's Home Checkup Chart describes and illustrates 20 adjustments that are easily made and frequently correct minor difficulties in perception. Here, for example, is one of them. Carefully check the wires leading to the wall socket plug. These often become loosened or completely disconnected. If it is the old-style plug, these connections can be tightened with a screwdriver. If the plug is the molded-in rubber type, it can be inexpensively replaced. Of course, if there is a structural failure or a major trouble with your set, always consult your Admiral dealer, the man in your community best equipped to give you satisfaction. But it may save his valuable time if you will get an Admiral home checkup chart from him or get one by writing a card or letter to Admiral Radio in care of the station. The fourth war loan drive begins on Tuesday of this week. It is imperative that we Americans purchase in the next four weeks $14 billion worth of war bonds. And this goal can be reached only if every American does his share only if we all back the attack. You all know the necessity of buying war bonds. You know that they are the finest investment in the world, both for you and for the America we all love. So let's bring victory closer and our boys home sooner. Let's all back the attack with war bonds. The appearance of service personnel on this program does not constitute an endorsement of our product for the armed services as the armed services do not endorse any product. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from leading news centers of the world. Warren Sweeney speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. WBBM Chicago, when simple headache or colds, painful miseries cause drumming, throbbing torment, get St. Joseph Aspirin for quick, comforting relief. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 